on this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, joined once again by Robin Tudor. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, a couple of topical subjects, including the uh, Roe v. Wade debate that's happening for some reason in Australia and comments on that, as well as the hypocrisy of um, some of the anti-violence vegans, go into a bit more about the food shortage and discuss the um, World Health Organization's uh, planned global pandemic treaty. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. On this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, Robin Tudor has joined us again um, for another episode. I'm not going to go through how many times you've, you've appeared because I just lose count about those things. Um, yeah, welcome too. To I the, lost count. Yes, welcome to the Fifth Estate again, Robin. Thank you so much for having me back on. Um, do you want to go for those who came in late, a bit of a spill about you or we'll just kick right off? Oh, let's just kick right off. If, if they want to know who I am, they can listen to the to the previous episodes. Okay, too easy. All right, now, um, I was going to save the best for last, but I thought, no, nah, let's kick this argument off right from the start. So we'll just rip the Band-Aid off and then hopefully we can, you know, peter down to a normal conversation about that. Um, <laughs> previous podcasts I've had a bit of a rant about um, anti-violence vegans and their views on um, abortion. Now, since that um, has happened, the, the Roe v. Wade situation has really blown up uh, and, and everything like that. Now, I have my views on it. I think that the anti-violence vegans pushing that is hypocritical um, and was trying to point that out to uh, one of the Facebook, quote-unquote, friends uh, who since blocked me because supposedly I'm a misogynistic, uh, right-wing um patriarchal something or another with views from the 1950s, so which is interesting. Um, it, it, it is interesting because when I see, when I see uh, anti-abortion rallies and, and protests, it's always striking to me how many women are holding up placards saying that, that they are pro-life. So it's, how can this be just a, a paternalistic or a misogynistic issue? When we have so many women saying, "No, I'm I'm not in favour of abortion." And now, I suppose I suppose those on the other side of this argument would make some sort of argument, like a Marxist argument around false consciousness. You know, like like these women are actually under the spell of patriarchy and they don't know it. And and frankly, I find that really insulting. It's so insulting of them to assume that that women can't think these issues through and come to their their own opinion or their own conclusion that is is not uh, in a way that they're not brainwashed by the patriarchy yes and and that's that's the thing it's yeah and it takes away the agency of the individual as well and it's just like you know you've got to follow this but then if you you know you've got to be brainwashed to our idea but if you're not brainwashed to our idea you're brainwashed to another idea um yes Yes. How how about how about preserving some space for the capacity of humans for critical thinking? Yes, and, and and that's it. And you know, I'll admit I have my views. Um, that's because I don't, for, you know, for argument's sake, don't have any skin in the game. But you know, if it was my sister or mm. or something like that, that was going through a situation where they had to have it, I'm not sure 
if my views would change. Um, but then again, mm. if they did, uh, you know, if that person did go through one, I mean, it's the thing. I'm not condemning the person and I don't have, um, you know, steadfast ideas against people doing it because, I mean, everything is, is different and unique and all that sort of stuff. But it's more about the practice being so widely accepted um, and and that's the bit that gets me is that, um, you know, yes, I think I was one or I just popped out at the time Ray V. Wade um, was handed down in the US. But actually I, I, I'll just talk about that bit first and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the practice. So the way mm. I understand it with the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, it's not ending abortion in the US. What that it is, is doing, absolutely correct. It's moving yes. the power back to the states, which is the same way that we yes. have it here. The states are responsible because the Constitution does not give the federal government direct authority to pass laws in those areas. So for all these ignorant people, and I'm going to call them ignorant and, and all that's because they are. They're just reading sound bites and thinking, so, you know, seeing sound yeah. bites and saying, yep, this is what it is. It's, it's not overturning it. It's not going to push everyone into back alleys. Yes, there will be some states that will legislate against it, though that's the same way as states legislate against, um, you know, medical marijuana, um, cannabis and all these other things. Mm. It's up to the people to decide what legislator they want in. It's not a bunch of, ironically, I think it was nine men at the time that handed down the Roe v. Wade decision that everyone was was all excited yes. about. Yes. Um, uh, that, that is true. And I think, so, you know, R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died not too terribly long ago, I, I, I think it was in the last couple of years, yes. you know, the, yes. the lioness of the left, she very, very vocally opposed the, the Roe v. Wade decision. And she posed it on on several grounds. She uh, rather rather self evidently, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in favour of the right of abortion for women. Although I I don't think uh, I, I don't presume to speak for her, but I don't think she would have been in favour of these you know, very very late term abortions. But but she was a, a sort of pro abortion availability. But why she was not in favour of the Roe v. Wade uh, decision was was basically because it was an extremely poor judicial decision. And this has been argued by by people both on the left and on the right ever since. Essentially, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision largely hinged on the right to privacy. And as Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out, it wasn't wasn't a pro-woman decision. It was a pro-doctor decision. That is, it it protected the rights of privacy of doctors who carried out the procedure. So you've got... Again, the lioness to the left saying, no, it was a terrible decision. It should be overturned. And we, we actually need to have the, the, the proper judicial process followed uh, for the for decision-making about abortion. And then the other thing that I find really noteworthy is some pretty left-wing writers, in, including um, Glenn Greenwald, who is not the darling of the left anymore. Uh, he's... he's He's on Substack now because, you know, the the, the left-leaning publication that, that he co-founded, The Intercept, actually threw him out. But um, Glenn Greenwald on his Substack has, has written some really, really powerfully argued pieces on Roe v. Wade and uh, pointing out exactly what you said, that these these people who are, sh- who are shrilly screaming that Roe v. Wade is a backward step for women and it's, you know, back to the days of, of dangerous backyard abortions, all the rest of it. They don't know what they're talking about. They never read the original decision. 
They haven't read any of the critiques of it since. They see it in this ridiculous sort of partisan, one-eyed fashion. And it's really, it's it's just getting extremely tiresome. I've, I've had it with these left-leaning people who don't bother to get themselves informed about anything. They just hop onto this latest thing bandwagon and then change their profile picture accordingly and, and proceed to lecture everyone else about it. And, and I mean, okay, so so that's the thing. I was like, you know, prior to that um, decision being leaked, no one could define what a woman was. But then, as soon as <laughs> as soon as the decision got leaked, bang, you could define what a woman was. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah. you know, I um, for for I, I won't take Dugan's term and call it a great awakening, but it's more about for, for people to wake up. To what's going on, and I'm not talking about those who claim to be woke. I'm talking about the people waking up to how um, dangerous the authoritarian left is. I think these, um, you know, their uh, obsession with allowing um, uh, Leah Thomas um, to compete in in sports, and then mm-hmm. locally the comments against um, Catherine Deves, who's um, in New South Wales about transgenderism in sport. The obsession with that saying, no, 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 you have to let everyone in, you have to let everyone in, and then this decision gets leaked and then all of a sudden they know what a woman is and it's just like, mm. nope, it's, it's a woman's body. Well, you know what, okay, two weeks ago, according to the way everything was, yes, I'm six foot three, I've got a beard and everything like that, but if I wanted to identify as a female, I could do it and no mm. one could challenge me on it. Suddenly but, you're a woman. Yes, yeah. but yeah. now because of that, if I turn around and say, well, hey, hang on, no, I disagree you know, I support that decision being overturned and I disagree with your views. I oh, know you're a misogynistic, patriarchal, whatever. Mm. Um, and this is, this, is where, this is how we know that we've entered the, the territory of sophistry because in, in order to, to conduct uh, sophisticated arguments in, in the ancient sense, right, what, what you need is to not have clear definitions of things or to, to have it be possible to change those definitions in the blink of an eye and then pretend that your new definition is the definition that's always been or the, the way that you defined a particular term last Tuesday. So th- this is the, the era of the, of the sophist and all of these arguments are fundamentally sophistry in, in their nature. Um, isn't that a, something Alinsky pushed? I'm sorry? Well, isn't that something that, that um, Sol Alinsky pushed, um, the whole uh, in his rules for radicals and all that sort of stuff? Anyway. Um, ah, it was, I, okay. I, I yeah, think he yeah, did. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing his name attached to that whole thing. I mean, I, I could have, I won't say dreaming about it, I could have been having a nightmare about it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think it was that. So now mm. um, something I, I did want to have a chat to you about in, in continuing with that subject So and, and get your views on it. Um, so in this um, big discussion that I had that, that ended up me getting blocked and, and all my comments being deleted by this person, um, mm. someone else has come around and said, um, you know, posted a comment about um, that it's wrong. Um, basically their original comment was it's not a right to stop a beating heart. So blah, blah, blah. Been a big comments mm. about that. First thing they do is ask, are you vegan? Well, which, mm. you know, anyway. So then this person comes up with his hypothetical and it is oh – it's a bit – okay, it is a short one, So, but just bear with me and I'll, I'll read it quote for word for word on there and then okay. um, 
I think this is one of the worst hypotheticals that everyone's put up there and I think we should, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on it after I finished. Okay, so it starts. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment and the Society of Music Lovers have canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. Uh, the executor of the hospital now tells you, uh, now tells you, look, we're sorry the Society of Music Lovers did, not tell, uh, did this to you. We would never have permitted it if we had have known. But still they did it and the violinist is now plugged into you. To unplug you uh, would mean to would be to kill him, but never mind. It's only for nine months, but then he will have recovered from his ailment, and you can and can safely be unplugged from you. Is it morally incumbent on you to accede to this situation? No doubt, uh, it would be very nice of you if you did a great kindness, but you have to accede to it. What if it were not nine months, but nine years, or longer still? What if the director of the hospital says, "Tough luck, I agree." but now you've got to stay in bed with a violinist, violinist plugged into you for the rest of your life because, remember this, all persons have a right to life and violinists are persons. Granted, you have a right to decide what happens in and to your body, but a person's right to life outweighs your right to decide what happens in and to your body so you can never be plugged un from him. Um, sorry, be unplugged from him. So that was the, the, the justification for abortion. Now, a couple of things with that... First of all, kidnapping is a crime, mm. okay? Mm. First of all, secondly, obviously the person was done unconscious, so that's a medical inter um, practice, which isn't that similar to what we've been forced to do for the last two years? People have been coerced. Mm. Anyway, um, Absolutely. I, I, I'll leave that on aside. So one crime, kidnapping. Second crime of um, um, a medical practice. Um, you could yeah. also call it deprivation of liberty because they're not being able to go anywhere. There's and a lack of informed consent. Lack this of informed thing was consent. done to you without without your knowledge of, of what was being done. Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, understanding, I'm not a biologist and, and and everything like that, but I don't believe that you all of a sudden wake up one. Yes, I mean you. Okay, you do wake up and realize that you're pregnant one day, but mm. something seems to have happened beforehand for you to get there. From what I understand through history, yes. there has only been one immaculate conception, and that was written about <laughs> everywhere. So how can mm -hmm. this and how can someone put this analogy with a straight face out on there as justification for their and I'm 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 going to call it barbaric views and apologies if I do upset you because we haven't discussed what your views are mm. um yeah 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 because uh, that's it, thing. again I mean this is this is sophistry like I was just as you as you described this rather baroque uh, scenario, I was actually just running through all the informal logical fallacies in, in my mind that, that, that are wrapped up into this. Um, and the, 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 the one that really stands out, of course, is, is that it is a false analogy. So that, that's the principal informal logical fallacy that's at work here. There are others, but I won't labour the point. But yeah, it is a totally false analogy. Now, are there some circumstances where the sexual act that results in conception is involuntary uh, on the part of the woman? Yes. I mean, some women are raped and become pregnant because of that. Uh, some some women are 
uh, not necessarily raped, but they are coerced into having sex with with somebody that they would choose not to or, or would choose not to under those circumstances. Uh, marital rape does happen. Um, so there are some circumstances where, yeah, the, the, the woman did not voluntarily engage in the, the sexual act which resulted in, in the conception. That's a minority of cases where where women become pregnant and then uh, choose to abort. I, I don't have the exact figures, but I'm pretty confident in stating that that happens in the minority of cases. And and so, uh, yeah, the this, this scenario involves a totally involuntary situation, whereas... The act of the act that results in conception is not too not it is not commonly involuntary. So and and that's the thing. And but okay, going maybe a little bit scientific and depending on what your views are. But when does life begin? I mean, does does life begin mm. only when the the clump of cells is pushed out? Okay, so okay, let's say if it starts there, at what time is it? If life begins at 40 weeks when the, the clump of cells is pushed out, yeah, life begins at 40 weeks after insemination. Or what happens if it's mm. a preemie? Does life begin mm. then? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And all yep. that. So now understand your thing. And Anna, as I said, I'm looking at it from, from not having. Um, you know, someone that I care about involved in, in one of those minority situations. Though what's the other thing is that why should that innocent being be have their life terminated and that is if life does begin at, at conception. So we'll, we'll use that one as, as an argument. So, uh, so I don't want to get into the, the weeks thing and all that sort of stuff. But, mm. you know, you're, you're talking about the act. Yes, the act was illegal and the person having that illegal act uh, you know, um, um, put upon them, um, don't know any other way to phrase it, should have been protected. Okay, so so that act, yes, they should, you know, society or the family or something like that should have protected that person from having that act done to them. Mm. Though the decision to get rid of the consequence of the act, and I'm, I'm not using that in cold or, or terms or anything like that, that shouldn't, you know, don't we have the equal responsibility to protect that innocent being as well. Yes. So what what strikes me, what strikes me is that you've got you've got people arguing it's like on the pro-abortion side. Um you have people arguing in in absolutist terms on on uh on this on this issue. But then applying a a utilitarian uh, philosophy and I don't see those two as being compatible. So uh, let, let me explain what I mean. Um, so uh, Jeremy Bentham, the, the English philosopher who developed the, uh, the well, the whole philosophical, I suppose, uh, schema of utilitarianism, argued that what was moral was 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 whatever created the the greatest the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm. Okay, so that is that is a consequentialist philosophy, and m- meaning meaning that Jeremy Bentham did not see any particular act as being inherently moral, kind of like from the get go. 
okay, or, or inherently immoral from the get-go. His view was that you could only judge the, the morality of something from the, from the outcome, okay? Did it result in the greatest good for the greatest number? Okay, if it did, then it was moral. If it did not result in the greatest, greatest good for the greatest number, then it was immoral. But you can only figure that out once you've actually seen the consequences of it. Yep. And I don't I actually don't see that as being compatible with an absolutist position, which is as I say, what you see the pro-abortion is taking, which is that abortion is always a woman's right in any circumstances, at any point during the pregnancy. And now now we see a, a a push in a couple of different jurisdictions around the world for post-term. Yes. I mean, it's defined as post-term abortion, but really it's murder. Yes. I mean, once the baby has been born, you there, there's no way that you can call it anything other than, than murder. Like a, a, a human being has entered the world. That human being is, is now able to survive without, uh, you know, without being in its mother's womb. Um even if it's slightly premature, but certainly if it's a full-term infant, then yes, all other things being equal, that that being can now survive outside the mother's womb. Um, so if you deliberately take the life of that being, that's murder. It's not really arguable as far as I can see. So again, I mean, absolutism just does not sit well with, with utilitarianism. Yep. And, um, and, and so going with that utilitarian thing, so, I mean, the only way that you could decide if, if it was right to have that abortion or not was then when you had to look at the whole lifespan of that individual that you're going to abort. And you don't know that because you're going to get rid of them before the individual before they have mm. their life. So, you know, hypothetically, following the utilitarian view, what if that person, yes, doesn't matter whether they had a bad childhood or not, grew up to cure cancer or grew up to be yeah. something, you know, some humongous thing, you know, and you've done that then. So, yeah, it, it's mm. it's that whole thing. Now, going mm. on to that, continuing mm. on that, there was a couple of days later that same individual um, posted, um, shared some TikTok thing where they're trying to bring the Australian election into this thing with women's rights. So, mm. um, uh, so it says um, blah, 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 blah. Okay, when a man claims to respect the dignity of every human being, whether they are born or unborn, it demonstrates his inability to understand what human life actually is. If a human is unborn, they are a fetus, part of a woman's body. They are not a human being until they are actually born. Perhaps a little more respect for the dignity of women might be a better way to pay respect to others. So, okay, let's say that is true. Uh, it's actually not. I mean, the fetus is not part of a woman's body. Uh, anyone with a basic understanding of embryology and, and the whole process of pregnancy knows that a fetus is not part of a woman's body. It is a separate entity inside that is growing inside the woman's uterus and that is actually perceived by the woman's body as a foreign uh, intruder, you might say, which is what necessitates a uh, the, the immunosuppression. Pregnant women's immune system is suppressed throughout pregnancy in order to to not expel the foreign intruder. Okay, so no, a fetus is not part of a woman's body. That is factually untrue. Oh, okay, well, I wasn't going to go there with that one because um, for that, but yeah, sorry, uh, I, I just no, no, I, no. I couldn't like I, that. That was yeah. I, I, couldn't resist that one. No, no, okay, I mean, go on, go on with your point. It, it's a valid point because it brings up the, the, the hypocrisy and the stupidity of, of their arguments that they're trying to do to, to justify it. So, okay, that's the thing. Yep, that's fine. If that's part of the human, bo- the, the, the woman's body, 
that's fine. Do we need to have all this prenatal care and all this money spent on prenatal stuff? And and how much better will hospital systems be if they just get rid of half the Lamar's classes and the uh, uh, midwives and everything like that? Because this is part of the human body. You know, it's part of the woman's body. Let's just worry about the child once they're born. Let's just forget about it then. Um, I'd be willing to bet, pose that argument to the same individual and they will just have a huge conniption about it. So mm, it, mm-hmm. it points... What happened to women's rights in that case? Yes. Like the, 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 right, the right to quality uh, prenatal care. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's that thing is, uh, uh, once again, it, it highlights the hypocrisy of, of their discussion. Um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, mm. it's yeah. it's one of those yeah. ones where you can't have nuanced discussions on Facebook because there's it's an echo chamber. Yes. Um, but I, I don't. I think it's very difficult to have these nuanced discussions even in person with these people again because they adopt morally uh, absolutist positions. As in, you know, if you argue against abortion, then you are, you know, forever and, and for all times and in all ways opposed to women's rights, which is which is just it's so obviously absurd. So I, I mean, I'm I'm in favour of us actually having. A, a civilized discussion as a as a society, where we do debate the, the the pros and cons of abortion, and that discussion is necessarily going to be messy because people do have strong opinions about this, and people's opinions about this are, are frequently. Uh, influenced by their own life experiences, and and of course, you know, you, you mentioned before, and I, I I congratulate you on 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 saying this that you know, if somebody close to you, for example, your own sister, was uh, put in this position, you you might change your view. So, I'm r- rather than that ridiculous hypothetical that that you were were presented with. Okay, here's here's a situation. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to be very careful with this because it does involve a real person. And so I'll just blur some of the details so that this person could not possibly be identified. But here's, here's a situation that I was personally, um, not personally involved in, but, but that I, I let, let's just say I bore witness to. Okay. So a, a woman in her uh, mid to late 30s, let's just say, a, a single mum who was raising her, her daughter, um, with not terribly much financial support from the child's father, that relationship very sadly ended within a few a few years after after the, the the child was born. So this woman was, as I say, you know, doing pretty hard scrabble to raise her daughter on a single income. She became involved with a, a very you know a lovely and supportive man, um, who unfortunately, due to some pretty bad health circumstances, was not able to to work on a full-time basis and therefore his financial situation was extremely unstable. Um, they So they got involved. Uh, she, she They were using contraception. Unfortunately, that contraception failed and uh, she found herself pregnant. And if she had gone through with that pregnancy she would have had to stop work to, you know, to have the baby and look after the baby. As a result, her she would have lost her income and therefore her, her daughter and she would have been essentially plunged into, well, you know, pretty close to, to destitution or certainly reliance on some not awfully generous government aid. She'd never been pro-abortion in the past, but she was really 
uh, grappling with this. And after a lot of soul searching and many, many sleepless nights and a tremendous amount of guilt, which she still suffers with to, to, to this day, uh, she did actually terminate the pregnancy. Now, um, as I say, I bore witness to this from the sidelines, uh, you might say, and I uh, don't hold any judgment over, over her for her decision. She made she made the, the decision out of uh, what, what I would say is a utilitarian um, um, calculus. That is, she was weighing up what was best for her, her daughter, who was already born, um, and for herself, let's, let's admit it. And she, very, very painfully, she came to the decision that her existing daughter's well-being and her own actually did outweigh the well-being of the, the unborn um, fetus embryo at that stage, I guess. Um, she had the termination reasonably early on, so technically still embryo. So that's one of these sort of complicated, nuanced argument, um, um, well, scenarios that needs to go into this debate. It's, in other words, I'm not an all or nothing sort of absolutist when it comes to abortion. I think that the decision is is very momentous and individual circumstances do need to be taken into account. What I have uh, a great deal of trouble with is the, the morally absolutist position that says, oh, abortion is fine for anyone under any circumstances at any stage. So, the, again, I'm, I'm in favour of a really broad public discussion about this so that people who, who well, hopefully, people who do have morally absolutist views can actually hear some of the stories of people um, like this individual who, who I described and just see whether it does kind of shift their thinking about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not foolish enough to, uh, to hold their, their view that everybody in a society is ever going to come to some consensus position on this. But I don't think that, that the, the, the position that we have right now is actually really serving um, the vast majority of people. That is, human life is, is rated far too cheaply yes. um, in, in, the, in the current regulatory environment. Yes. So, and, and with that, um, now, I, yes, I know it's anecdotal and it's only based on um, my experience and everything like that, yet the... The number of, of women that I know have that have been put in a situation where they had to have one have remembered it and it's mm. it's screwed with their mind and mm. it's uh-huh. it's the thing is that I don't think it should be used as a form of contraception. I think it should be um Mm, Something absolutely. as dare I mm. say it, the last or you know, the last possible um, you know, alternative or anything like that. But and and when when we have the availability of medical abortion, that is, you could just rock up to a pharmacy, you can get the pills and take them, go home that night and have a medically induced abortion. Yes, um, some women unfortunately do use it as a form of. Well, that's not technically that that it's not a contraception. Um, yeah, yeah, the morning yeah, after pill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's an abortifacient, but it's it's marketed as being um, contraception, and 
that's very uh, deliberate, I, I would say, in that, again, it's actually blurring the line between contraception, which is, you know, uh, as defined, it's it, contra means against and conception obviously means, you know, thought and pregnant. Um, whereas an abortifican is is something that's used to terminate the, the life of the embryo once it's already begun. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's you know, I honestly don't believe in um, that in the current situation we will be able to have a rational discussion about it because everyone wants to get, it's their right mm. to get upset about anything that anyone says. So, um, I yes, and and people's feelings, people uh, to be, uh, like the the current social mores encourage people to prioritize their feelings above rational discussion. So it, it's it's like we've we're in this post enlightenment age where rational discussion is now seen as being <laughs> patriarchal. <laughs> Yeah. Which is so insulting to women. Like, oh, women couldn't possibly have reasoned discussions. So, so if you try to get anyone to engage in a in a reason, if you get if you try to get any uh, any females, any girls or women to engage in a reasoned discussion, then you must be must be in favour of the patriarchy. Like, oh my god, it makes my head explode. Yeah, and, yeah, and <laughs> is is that you know due to the influence of you know cultural Marxism, Marxism or, or fascism or whatever the hell it's turning into mm. now on society that, that these people have you know started down um, and and you know what let's pick on the vegan movement for, for example because that's something you know I know about um, I'm, yeah, that I'm very familiar with I won't say I know about I'm very very familiar with it mm. they've started on that that left leaning bandwagon and um, let, okay they've stepped onto the slippery slope. So they've stepped on it mm-hmm. as it's gone down there. It's gone, hey, they've followed the, the propaganda that um, the um, meat industry and dairy industry is patriarchal because of the way that they treat the, the female species, animals mm. and, and everything mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. oh, my God, so that's the patriarchy. What else is patriarchy? Oh, it's because of the um, sexualization of, of whatever else, you know, cars because sex sells and it's always the, mm-hmm. the scanty clad bikini models or the... Um, the girls in the um, like receipts at the Formula One, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's gone to then it's gone to mm-hmm. sport because we've got the cheerleaders there in their short skirts and pom poms and all that. Mm-hmm. Okay, what else is? And, and then it just, the, the momentum builds because they're going down that slope. Is mm. that anything that the authoritarian anything left, and everything is evidence that, uh, of the patriarchy? Yeah, yes, yeah, and yeah. and yeah, it, it just seems that. You know, it, it's a little ball that you can't stop moving. Is that you know, mm. it's and you know, I'd, I'd be inclined to to turn around and say the other way is that this individual who who I um, quoted before, um, I'd be willing to say that um, within, if you have a look at everything that this, that this woman's posted, I'd be inclined to say that no, she's a misand- um, uh, misogynist within herself, and she's potentially a misandrist too because it's coming. It becomes evident from the comments made that she's against males, especially mm, the quote-unquote mm-hmm. cisgendered ones. Um, so, yes. she's, in other words, she's actually sexist. Yes, mm. and that you know, her comments there are actually against women as well, because you know she pushes pushes the whole transgenderism, which is you know when it, it's basically the men's right to do whatever he wants. 
Um, mm. It's either a man's mm. right to identify as a female or, or a woman's yeah, so, right to identify so as a man. So men who have men genitalia, uh, men, men who have male genitalia are allowed to compete in women's sports, even though they're, they're clearly, you know, Leah Thomas being the archetypal example of this, they're, they're, they clearly have a totally unfair advantage, you know, taller, more muscular, um, faster you know, uh, and and also people, you know, individuals with male genitalia are allowed to go into women's change rooms you oh, know, yes. if, if you follow this transgender. Yes. Like, no, I'm sorry, that is not pro-women's rights. That's actually anti, anti-woman, anti-women's rights. By the way, um, the whole notion of women's rights and trans rights and, and whatever the hell rights, I, um, th- th- this is, this is such a misdirect, human rights. Human rights. That's what we need to be talking about. All humans have inalienable human rights, just as written in the US Constitution. Yes, I know the founding fathers were racist and they had slaves. They had a blind spot. I know. However, it says it right there in the Constitution. All men, yeah, I know. Again, that was the usage of the time. If you if you speak German, you know that the word for, for everybody, you know, for just humanity generally, is man. Okay, M-A-N, man. It was just the usage of the term, uh, of the times. But all men, read all people, are created equal, you know, endowed by their creator with inalienable human rights. Human rights, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about women's rights, gay rights, whatever rights, what we're saying is, well, it's, it's kind of like it, it, it's straight out of Animal Farm. All animals yes. are equal, but some are more equal than others. No, no. All humans have human rights. Let's just, you know, we start there, we stop there. It's not women have these rights and gay people have these rights and transgender people have these rights. No, human rights. Okay. Now you're on that roll. What do you think about the gender pay gap? Okay. So (laughs) here we go. Okay. So my thoughts are it doesn't exist. My thoughts Um, it doesn't exist because I cannot find one modern award mm. where males are treated differently, uh, paid paid more for females doing the same job. Um, yes. So based on my uh, – I, I, I'm not an economist and I have not analysed these data my, myself. However, uh, I have read papers by economists who have the, the requisite knowledge and they've actually analysed the difference between what women earn and what men earn. And as you say, there is no gender pay gap as in, as in um, if a woman performs – the same tasks for the same number of hours per week as a man um, in, in the same industry, I guess that's that's uh, wrapped up in, in performs the same tasks, she gets the same amount of money. The fact is men, on the whole, work longer hours. Men uh, disproportionately work in industries that are more highly paid for various reasons. Uh, some of that is, you know, for instance, uh, some of the more highly paid jobs in, involve great uh, great danger or isolation, you know, for example, mining, um, FIFO-style style mining. And so more men than women work in those types of jobs and as a consequence they, you know, on the whole, men earn more than women. Uh, women, of course, earn less over the course of their lifetime um, if they have children because most of them will stop work, you know, somewhere in late pregnancy and then stay home with their with their children for some period of time. And so over the course of their life, yeah, they earn less than women. Uh, they earn less than men. As to there being some, some you know, <laughs> the patriarchy, some systemic sexism that prevents women from earning as much as men, the evidence for that is not there. 
Uh, here's another, another thing that's really, really absolutely fascinating. We've had this movement really uh, since I was in high school in, in the late 1980s to get more girls uh, studying STEM subjects. They weren't called STEM because I'm old. Um, that was just called maths and science back then, and now it's STEM. So there's been this this concerted movement, which has really, really gathered strength in the last, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say like 10 to 15 years, of trying to get more girls to take maths, more young women to enrol in STEM subjects in university, uh, to get more women to go into engineering and mathematics and, and, and so on and so forth, okay? Now, in the, in the countries and the world that have gone the furthest in, in terms of um, not, not, not just gender equality, but really uh, uh, social engineering to break down uh, differences in, in gender roles. And here I'm speaking specifically about Scandinavia. Those are the countries where the, the gendering of, of occupation is, is uh, most strong. That is, in, in Sweden, which is the most, you know, gender neutral country on earth, the proportion of women going into STEM-related careers is lower than in countries like in the US that supposedly has, you know, is dominated by the patriarchy. That's really interesting. The fact is, most women are more interested in people than things. And most men are more interested in things than people. Clearly, there are major exceptions to that, okay? There are plenty of individual women who are brilliant physicists, brilliant mathematicians, you know, brilliant and capable engineers and geologists, and God only knows what. There, there, are, there are women in the space program. They, they want to go to the moon, and good luck to them. And I think it's absolutely fantastic that in the 21st century, we, we now have a, a, a social environment where women who have those kinds of interests are uh, not only able to pursue them, they are encouraged, they are supported. Isn't that great? I also think it's wonderful that we're now, uh, again, in the 21st century, if, if a man wants to go into kindergarten and preschool teaching or, or nursing or any of the other sort of traditionally female, you know, caring professions, he can. Mm. And there are tons of, of men who go into nursing, not quite so many in, in sort of, you know, kindy and, and, and infant school. I think you call it something different in Victoria, don't you? We, we call it infant school. Or do we? We did in New South Wales. I don't know what they call it in Queensland. Anyway, the, the, the sort of the first couple of years, like uh, kindy yeah, or, kindy or prep, prep, I, yeah. prep, I think you call it. And then um, years one, two and three. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, uh, the only... Like the, the the staff rooms were all female. It mm. wasn't until you got to year uh, year three, four, five. No, what was it? Uh, yeah, three, three, four, five, six primary school that you started to see male teachers, and and still there were far fewer male teachers than the female teachers. Uh, and then once you get to high school, it's it's a lot more equal. Well, that's now breaking down, and there are men who go into kindy teaching. Absolutely fantastic. That's great. If, if, if you're drawn to that, good luck to you. And, and I'm sure if you are drawn to it, you'll do a marvellous job at it. Um, but, but the notion that we, we should be pushing girls who don't have an inherent interest in maths or, or science or engineering into those careers to achieve some sort of gender equality is, is I mean, it's, it's actually... I, it's it, it, it's not supportive of women's right to express it, to to express themselves, 
bride. It, it, it's actually, I don't consider it supportive of, of either sex to to have a, a um, uh, to, to, to basically have um, a, a system of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's like reverse sexism. So you're, you, uh, yes, the, the more is. money's being yes. spent to, on to get the females into STEMs, which, and, and it's being showing that the boys are suffering because of it. And, Precisely. You know, the, the boys are being dumbed down. They're being, um, I don't know how else to phrase it, but being demasculinized, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. everything like that. So, what's that going to do for our society when this current crop going through, like this generation, is into mm. a position where they're and, able and, to and become what's leaders? It do? What is it going to do to the relations between the sexes? Mm. You know, to the ability of of, of men and women. Uh, and, and boys and girls, for that matter, to to have you know uh, friendly relationships with each other, and then you know loving and respectful relationships with each other. When when men, or or say uh, you know young young males, youth, let's just say, when when youths who are extremely uh, brilliant at at maths or engineering or science, find out that they missed out on a place in a university course because. A, because a, a young female student was given priority because she's female, what do you think that does to to young men and mm. to their attitude to women, mm. right? Their their own life chances are actually being um, uh, undermined, constrained, but because of I don't I don't call it reverse sexism. It's just sexism, yeah. right? Uh, it, it's discrimination. Whether it's discrimination against men or discrimination against women, you know, on the basis of of belonging to one or the other class, again, you know, we we, we seem to be really quite clear on what constitutes a man or a woman when it comes to subsidising girls to go into STEM. (laughs) Somehow we know what a girl is at that point. Um, uh, It's sexism either way. Okay. Now, we're running out of time. Um, Mm. We'll try and get... Some of these other ones just done quickly. Um, 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 yeah. Um, okay. I think the the big one that we're probably going to rant about a lot is the pandemic treaty um, that our yes. supreme overlords at the World Health Organization slash UN slash World Economic Forum slash China um, want to. Which bring is all in. just one big gluey mess, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on that? Should we be doing it? Should we not be doing it? Um, who's to say whether it's going to be good or bad um, and all mm, that? And mm. how much is Bill Gates going to be involved in it? Yeah, okay. Well, let's see, in no particular order. How much is Bill Gates going to be involved in it? Since Gates is is be, between the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's contribution to the WHO and then the indirect contribution, financial contribution, I mean, that he makes through his other outfits like Seppi and Gavi. I I haven't I haven't actually looked at, at WHO funding since about mid-2020, but but at that stage, he was the the largest funder of the of the WHO because Trump had actually pulled out the US's involvement. Um, now that Biden has like re-enrolled uh, the US in the WHO, that may or may not be the case anymore. Uh, China's funding to the WHO, like their their contributions, have have actually increased over that time. In any case, Bill Gates uh, is is going to have a very large influence on the WHO through his various um, outfits. Now, uh, the, so so the pandemic treaty is intended by the WHO to essentially be top-down control 
over the response to a pandemic of every nation that is that that is a member of the WHO. And I think, well, I mean, you and I would agree, I think anyone on Team Reality would agree that the WHO has made a complete hash of its management of the of, of the COVID episode. So their advice on the whole to countries has been absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, Tedros famously saying, test, 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 that, that's how we're going to uh, control the pandemic. Well, how did that work out? You know, the, the, the test that the WHO promoted, which was developed by um, Christian Drosten at, at uh, the Charité Hospital in Berlin. Uh, Drosten, by the way, is a very, very suspect carrier. It's a, a, a character. It is extremely dubious whether he is actually a doctor, as in has a PhD. Uh, it, it, I won't go into that, but 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 Drosten is, as I say, a very very dubious character. The PCR test that that he developed, which the, which WHO endorsed as being the you know the model for the test to use all over the world, is so fundamentally flawed. You know, 15 ways to Sunday. Uh, there was a, a a paper that was that was submitted to well, a letter uh, that was submitted to the, the journal, the Euro Surveillance Journal, that actually published the, um, the specs, you might say, of that, of that test, that pointed out the, the manifold flaws in that test, right? So, so and, and, and that, as I say, was, was the test that was used as the model to detect SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, throughout the world. So it is a, a, a terribly inaccurate test, and it was used, of course, at a, at, a, at a cycle of amplification that ensured that that almost all the results that it generated were, were garbage. Like once you push it up above uh, high high 30s cycles, 97% of the positives that it generated were false positives. In other words, people were told that they were infected with SARS-CoV-2 and and they were not. In fact, uh, there there are you know so many other uh, problems with with that. With, uh, with that test. Uh, the, the WHO also promoted lockdowns. There was some internal dissent, which I found very interesting. Um, the contender for the, the role of, of Director General uh, of WHO um, at, at the time when Tedros was, was appointed to that position, the, the, the main contender for, for that role was uh, David Nabarro, and uh, Tedros got the gig largely because of his backing from China and, and Bill Gates. Nabarro was a very vocal voice within the WHO quite early on saying, lockdowns are terrible, lockdowns are catastrophic, we need to stop this, it's doing more harm than good. But his voice was drowned out. So yeah, WHO's uh, pandemic management was absolutely appalling. I mean, just, just one other example, sorry, just to really ram home the point. The... The WHO mission to, uh, to to China to try to investigate the origins of the pandemic was an absolute sham. It was a farce. I mean, for God's sake, you know, they they their, the WHO committee was headed up by that uh, shocking individual um, Peter Darjak, mm. who heads up the Eco Health Alliance. Yeah, yeah, mm. the one that actually funded the gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And they appoint him to be head of the commission, the WHO commission, investigating the origins of, of the pandemic. So so every, every element of WHO's supposed management of COVID has been absolutely catastrophic, disastrous, 
um, it, it, it's an unmitigated disaster. And now what do they want to do? They want more power. They want absolute power. They want to be able to override the, the, the sovereignty, the national sovereignty of every country so that whatever they say a country has to do, that country has to do it immediately. And, and the other thing is that, uh, I mean, each, each country or even within countries, you know, individual regions or districts or states or provinces or whatever can, have, can, can be in a very different situation with respect to uh, you know, whatever infectious disease threat is, is looming. And so the idea that we can have one top-down policy that is applied to every jurisdiction, regardless of, for example, demographic dis differences. So uh, you know, if we look at SARS-CoV-2, most African countries have really had a, um, uh, ha have had very few, they've had very low death rates. Mm. From, from COVID. And there are many reasons for that, not least of which is, is significant demographic differences. In other words, Africa has, has a, a very young population. There are some African countries where the median um, age is uh, under 20. Jeez. And so, yeah, oh yeah, uh, for, for a number of reasons, high birth rates, you know, civil wars that have basically killed off the older folk, um, mm. all sorts of reasons. But, but Africa has a young population. And you know, as you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, there is literally a thousand-fold gradient in risk of, of serious outcomes or death with, with SARS-CoV-2 infection. That is, uh, if you're a person who's 85, your risk of dying if you become infected is a thousand-fold, uh, possibly even more, than, than say, an 18-year-old. Okay, um, assuming or that, a five-year-old, five we're year -old, still jabbing yeah, them. or a five-year-old, or, or whatever the mm. heck, yeah, yeah, yeah. Assuming that both the eighty-five-year-old and the five-year-old are in good health, you know, uh, with respect to their age. Mm. So, so there are demographic differences. There are obviously climatic differences. Uh, there are geographic differences. You know, for example, in in certain states in the in well, let's just take the U.S. as an example. It is ludicrous to assume that a, a state with very high population density or even a region within a state that has a high population density, like, say, New York City, should have exactly the same approach to management of a highly infectious respiratory uh, virus than, than a more rural area, such as upstate New York, which is, which is rural and low population density. And in particular, the, the notion that a densely populated region should have the same approach to management as a really sparsely populated rural, like a, a largely rural state, it's, it's just insane. I mean, each each local health authority should be able to make decisions for the uh, for, for what kinds of, of public health responses they will have based on local conditions, which own which they know best. The WHO does not know know what those local conditions are. They cannot know what they are, and and of course, I mean. Um, the pandemic treaty, just, just beyond beyond the sheer public health nonsense of it, that that is, it's not justified on on public health grounds. But but of course, it's a Trojan horse for control by the globalists. Yeah, yeah centralisation of power. Precisely. Okay. Now, um, okay, we'll try, I only got a couple of minutes to go. I did want to rant more about that one, but but I did want to talk to you about food shortages. Um, mm. Now we're having. Um, Unprecedented inflation, um, unprecedented staff shortages, um, which obviously as a consequence of staff shortages, it's pushing the 
um, labour price up because you know if you want to mm. attract good talent, then you've got to pay them more, um, because, which is yeah, causing people inflation. Can, people can afford to be choosier yeah. in this environment, yeah. Um, yeah. causing inflation and all that sort of stuff, and, and you know, resulting in food shortages. Now, um, yeah, I, I think that this is the result of planning from a number of years. Um, I my thoughts are that the last two years have um, the regimes, um, in, in particular Victoria, um, have helped bring about that situation. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can't mm-hmm. turn an economy off, whether it's the Victorian economy, Australian economy or the global economy, you can't turn it off and then think, yep, it's going to turn back on again like a light switch. Um, of course. It's more of a oh, tap where you've got to ratchet it's it up. self-evident. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, I, I'm seeing stuff every – like, um, you know, global conflict aside, um, mm. uh, in Victoria the agricultural farmers are complaining because we can't get the students in. So, you know, student mm. visas, the um, mm. working holidays and all that sort of to, stuff. To, we to can't the get fruit the, picking and so to forth. To do the yeah, fruit yeah, picking, yeah. et cetera. Like seasonal yeah. agricultural labour. Uh-huh. Hasn't got that yeah. in. So that's pushing shortages there. And then you combine that with international conflicts because um, – Fertilizer comes from Ukraine region predominantly. From Russia, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Add blue because we've jumped on the the granny bandwagon and new diesel engines are um, Euro six compliant, which means that they have uh-huh. to have add blue additive. Uh, that's predominantly because we've got rid of manufacturing in Australia. A majority of the urea for that comes from China. Um, mm-hmm. If we hadn't mm-hmm. have got rid of fertilizer manufacturing in here and, and everything else like that, we would have been able to produce it as our own as a byproduct of, of that um, and all that sort of stuff. So it's all this that's leading yeah. to food shortage. And, and even I mean, let me let me just throw. I I, I know where you're going with this, but let, let me let me just throw a, a little side one into the mix here. The green revolution which is why farmers are now dependent on all of these inputs on basically NPK fertilisers, so, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilisers. The Green Revolution was was actually uh, funded into existence by the Rockefeller Foundation. And so, you know, prior to that, of course, uh, farmers used... For, you know, for example, and I know vegans don't want to hear this, but farmers did actually use um, animal dung, animal yeah. waste. And blood and to, bone and to, stuff like that Yeah, to, to, to increase their, their soil fertility. That is an ancient practice. It's It's been done forever. Now, there, there are there are people that I know of who, who have developed veganic agricultural systems, green manure systems, and, and that's great. I, I certainly am using those systems on, on the property that, now, out, that I now live on rather than animal manure for, for various reasons. I sure as hell wouldn't put blood and bone into my soil, <laughs> um, but so, so we've been brought to this. We've been brought to this this situation over many many decades. Um, and and speaking of many 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 de- decades, here's a here's a quote from that lovely fellow Henry Kissinger: "Who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls money can control the world." 1974. Okay, just just on uh, that one. That. Okay, just just to pause that for a minute. Who controls the majority of the stuff in Australia? China. Mm, yes, yes, and that situation has been engineered into existence over the last couple of decades. But again, let's let's wind back on that. So, uh, who who actually funded who funded Mao? Wasn't that was that the Rockefellers? Yeah, was it, you yeah. betcha. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's one of. I mean, I, there's the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, and I'm not sure which side of the coin. I think they're both the same side, but it just yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, they certainly uh, the the, the Rothschilds are like a, an older family, uh, at least in relation to when they acquired their their wealth. Um, but yes, they although they they may seem to compete in in certain territories, uh, their their objectives line up pretty neatly. So they they do tend to cooperate. Yes, um, and and then of course you know who who flew to China ahead of Nixon in 1970. When did Nixon go to China? Anyway, uh, who went ahead of him by a couple of months to to open up China and prepare it to engage with the West? Oh, that's a little bit before my time, so you'll have Henry to... Kissinger. Oh, was it? Oh, Henry Kissinger went to China ahead of Nixon, oh. and and so the the entire you know rapprochement of, of China with the West and the the reindustrialization. Uh, well, actually, I suppose it was really industrialization of, of China was uh, funded by Western banking powers, who Kissinger, of course, is an agent of. Uh, he's he's the he's the the Renfield of the the Rockefeller family, um, the protege of. David, David Rockefeller, and then the big new Brzezinski was was a protege of Nelson Rockefeller. So, uh, yeah, interesting little little dance between yeah. Kissinger and and, and Brzezinski. But all, all that all that was a um, a precursor for the Lima Declaration because they were just starting to um, um, cultivate the soil. So when all mm. the Western democracies met in Peru in Lima and mm-hmm. signed that, I think mm-hmm. that was seventy three or seventy four. Um, which was an agreement to um, send manufacturing into, um, you know, quote unquote, third world countries or developing countries yeah. to improve yeah. their uh, manufacturing capability and to remove global poverty. And yet, even despite the size now, China is still classed as a developing country. Yes, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, and there is tremendous wealth in 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 China. And you know, to to be fair, uh, industrialization has lifted uh, millions of Chinese people up out of poverty. Um, however, wealth disparities have have increased dramatically, as, as they as they do whenever you've got a you know corrupt globalist um, superstructure in power there. Okay, so so all that to say, I mean, if if you look at that Kissinger quote, like break it down, who controls the food supply controls the people. So, in other words, the the uh, while, while there are clearly global supply chains, and disrupting any of those chains uh, compromises the food supply to to people in multiple countries. But you know uh, that so so the, the control of food supply or the disruption of food supply can very much be be fine tuned on a local basis. You know, you you point out that the policies of Chairman Dan have exacerbated the, the food supply crunch in, in Victoria. We don't see it so much in Queensland. I think partly because Queensland is such a major agricultural producer. So we haven't seen the, the sort of gaps on the shelves in the supermarkets here that, that I'm hearing from um, people I know in, in Victoria. Uh, who controls the energy can control whole continents. So just look at what's happening in Ukraine. Mm. Um, the entire continent of, of Europe is uh, – I mean, they're, they're in summer now, and so they don't have such a, a crying need for natural gas. Um, just wait until winter when – Thousands of, of Germans are freezing to death in their homes because 
they they can't get natural gas or you know they'll they'll just go around the the sanctions on Russia and and buy their buy their natural gas uh, from Russia but but through a third party because you know the, the majority the majority of countries in the world are not actually going along with with the Biden's Biden regime's yeah. sanctions. I think you know, India is basically yeah. saying yeah India is saying to hell with that you know we, we've got 1.6 billion people we need energy uh, we're not really into your your neo-colonialist colonialist war so so we're, we're going to buy our energy from whoever you like and whoever we like and you can't stop us. So you probably had this weird situation where Germany just, you know, uh, buys Russian gas from a third party like India, but that, that will jack up the price of it. And so you're still going to have, you know, uh, poorer Germans freezing to death because they can't afford the, uh, the increased energy prices. So, do, so you, do you think there is going to be a worldwide famine? Sorry to interrupt. Um, I think it's extremely likely extremely likely and the the primary step that i think everyone should be taking is well two steps really is is stock up on on storable food i mean as vegans we're we're we're, we're happy right because mm. the stuff that we like to eat lentils and beans and and uh you know grains and so forth you can you can keep that for ages you could buy it in bulk and store it all these people who are buying you know half a cow or something um if, if the electricity goes off then <laughs> they're gonna have a very stinky freezer whereas i'll be I'll be totally fine with, with, with my, you know, bulk bought lentils. That's one thing. And then the second thing I'm encouraging everybody to do is, is get to know your, your local, your local uh, uh, market gardener, your local orchardist, you know, find people in your area who, who produce food and, uh, and, and start trading with them on, on a one-to-one basis, you know, stop, stop complaining when you go to the supermarket and you see the shelves are empty. Yeah, six very bucks for a head of lettuce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very often the growers they they have plenty of supply, right? Um, they they just can't necessarily get it to the supermarkets. They'd happily sell it direct to you, though. So, uh, and, and that if we do that, if we disintermediate the intermediaries like the supermarkets, we actually take back control over that food supply. And of course, you know, if you if you look at permaculture principles. You can actually have a food forest in your own suburban backyard and, and produce some of your own food and trade with your neighbours. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, will there be a, a global famine? Um, almost certainly. And if you, if if sufficient people don't prepare for this, then within a couple of weeks they are going to to be very very hungry. And at that point, they are going to be quite willing to to go along with whatever government insist that they do in order to get their their food rations mm. and then we end up in a very very dangerous position yeah yeah and it, it, i think it's going to be worse than what's happened in the last two years oh without a doubt without a doubt yes mm. yep. yes i mean the last two years has just been softening people up for, for what's yeah. to come so, yeah, yeah. sorry to be debbie downer and sort of nice way to end the to, to, to end the podcast but if you thought the covid era was bad you ain't seen nothing yet yeah i think that was just a test it was just to see yeah. how far they, they can go, and it's a compliance test. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, Australians as as a broader community have shown that yes, they will submit to anything to continue being consumerists. Yes, um, And um, I, you, you touched on on vegans being right because the lentils and beans. I I don't think so. 
I think the modern vegans are going to have have the biggest problem because they're used to oh, eating yeah. all the, the fake meats food, and all the, the shit that comes from overseas vegans. and and everything oh, like that. Um, totally, the junk food vegans are in deep caca, but I'm not. Yeah, I mean, how many know how to make their own Satan? They just they just rather go and buy mm. some shit that's made in Asia, um, mm. packaged because some local vegan has his face as the brand, mm. um, and they think, oh my Hail god, Satan. yes. Mm. Um, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, no one knows how to make that anymore. I mean, yes. you know, and um, combine that with so many people who think that they're gluten intolerant and and I'm not <laughs> saying that, that celiacs don't exist. I'm, I'm not saying that. Celiac so, disease it, it, does exist. Yes, I'm not saying that. there are yep. some non-celiac people who can't tolerate gluten. But, yes, yes uh, I would say a sizable chunk of people who believe or claim that they're gluten intolerant are nothing of the sort and would do very well to go and eat some nutritious, you know, rye or wheat or barley-based products. Yes, and, and get back to... I, I think that, yeah, we, we need to wind our availability back quite a few years, um, sort of like the, our acceptance of foods. I mean, you know, I remember when I went mm-hmm. vegan, I mean, all I could do if I went to eat out was eat at the Chinese shop because they did um, stir-fried tofu, <laughs> bean curd, um, and all that sort of stuff. And all that. Yeah. But now we're so spoiled for choice and I think it's all made us soft that we're not going to be able to handle if we can only get, you know, a, a 10 kilo bag of lentils or beans and that's what we're going to be eating mm. for a week, um, no, because everyone wants the so, food food diet and varieties and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, so so to, to try to end, to try to end today on, on a more positive note, I, I came across a book on Australia in the Depression. Let me just see if I can quickly find it. Um, the Great Depression, I mean. Um, and... Unlike you know most books about the about the Great Depression, it doesn't sort of focus too terribly much on the causes and the economic hardship. It's called Australia's Great Depression: How a Nation Shattered by the Great War Survived the Worst Economic Crisis It Has Ever Faced. It's by a woman called Joan Beaumont. And okay, so so Joan Beaumont's focus in the book is is how incredibly resilient Australians are well already were. Uh, but that became even more so during the Great Depression, and and Australia did not Australians weren't starving during the Great Depression. There wasn't an abundance of food, but they certainly weren't facing starvation. And why? Because they knew how to grow vegetables in their backyard, and they did. And they they traded food that they had with their neighbours, with their community. And there were community-run or, uh, I'm guessing at the time, largely church-run soup kitchens and so forth. And, okay, you know, we're not really into this sort of thing, but the men went out and shot rabbits and people ate a lot of rabbits. And and so because, because they were tough people and resilient, they were not sitting on their rear ends with their hand out waiting for daddy government to drop some money and food into their hands, they actually did tolerably well. Um, my my mother, who is 90, was talking to me the other day. You, you know, uh, as people get older, they, they really reminisce more yeah. about the past. And so so she was, oh, my goodness. You know, I, I kind of wish I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd been recording this because all sorts of memories have been coming back to her about her life when, when she was growing up. And uh, she was one of five children, and uh, she was born in 1932. So the, the depression was still raging, you know. Um, and 
uh, yeah, the stories that, that she told, like everyone, everyone did it tough. Uh, no one had new things, and a lot of a lot of children, particularly bigger families, they didn't they didn't have shoes. The shoes got handed down from the older siblings to the younger ones. <laughs> and uh, the the thing is, though, that I mean, she was recounting all of these stories, but she wasn't saying, "Oh God," and it was terrible, you know, and it was it was so awful, and it scarred me for life. No, she actually looked back on that with some degree of of, of fondness. And I think that's really, really remarkable and, and extremely hopeful that that you know this this could be a great awakening. Yeah, I know it's a, such a wanky term, um, but there, there is there there is always the possibility in the midst of of catastrophe and financial meltdown and whatever the heck else. There's always the possibility for for people to kind of reach down deep inside them and find their own balls slash ovaries slash whatever gonads they have, find their spine, find their heart, and actually, you know, stand up, get together with their fellow man and woman. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, mean, I think that's the thing. It, it, it brings back the community. Um, yeah. Whereas we've, uh-huh. we've become so socialist relying on the state to do everything. The state rather, um, rather than our families, yes. our community. Yeah, yes. 100%. Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to cut you off there. I know you've dropped a couple of hints about ending the show, so um, yes. I will. I will <laughs> Sorry, take, much to do. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take your hint, and I won't um, get back on the soapbox there. I will end it. Um, so, thank you again for a an informative discussion. Um, I it, it went better than I thought. I thought we would have a bit of a clash at the start, but hey, um, it, it went better. We were able to have a, have a rational discussion on things. Um, let's and, and talk all that about sort of things we disagree on. Let's make that fashionable again. Yes, yes. <laughs> have, have, have the hard conversations, have the difficult conversations yeah. Um, yeah. And, and all that sort of stuff. So um, once again, thank you for joining and um, we'll, we'll pencil in another one and we'll, we'll see what other disagreeing subjects we can get on to. So thanks a lot, yeah, Robin. totally. Thank, thanks for having me back on. As always, it was a pleasure. Okay, okay bye. And that concludes uh, this episode with Robin Tudor. Um, you'll be able to find Robin at the uh, social media stuff uh, that'll be in the show notes. So thanks for listening and I look forward to having you join me on the next one. Bye for now.